So what do you get when three investment consultants walk into a studio? No, Dan, don't go there. Well, I I guess we're about to find out. (laughs) Yeah. So, Mary, here we are. Yes, Dan, our first episode. How exciting. So I suppose we should tell the listeners a little bit about what we're planning to do, right? So this show is going to be all about investing. But we're going to keep it simple and cut out the jargon. And we're going to have regular guests. Yeah, we'll be welcoming a new guest each week that we think has something to offer our listeners in terms of expertise in investments. And who should listen to the show? Well, we'll aim to make our content relevant for pretty much anyone thinking about investing, but particularly those for whom it's their day job. That might be investment teams and investment committee members at wealth managers, family offices, endowments, insurers. And of course, pension funds? Yes, and anyone advising them. I'm pretty sure my mum will be listening too. Hi, (laughs) mum. And we'd love to hear your thoughts. Send us questions, feedback, ideas for who we should invite on the show. Let us know what you think. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Today on Investment Uncut, we welcome special guest Matt Gibson, who heads our manager research team at LCP. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. Nice to be here. Thanks, Mary. Would you like to go ahead and tell the listeners a bit about what you do at LCP? So I'm head of manager research at LCP, which means I'm responsible for coordinating all of the manager research effort that we put in, which involves seeing over 400 different funds every year across all different asset classes. And ultimately, I'm responsible for making sure that's delivered in a format to our clients uh, is, is useful and insightful for them. So you meet a lot of fund managers, basically. I meet a lot of fund managers. So Matt, why don't you tell us something that listeners won't find on your LinkedIn profile or resume? I've been running and fell running for a few years, and I've recently got into longer distance running. So I've just signed up for a 100-kilometer run in wow. this summer. So wow. I'm busy training already to try and do that. So. Awesome. Good luck Impressive with that. Impressive stuff. So Matt, you wrote a piece last year, I think, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But I think the basic idea of the piece was challenging a little bit this concept of the idea of long term always being the best idea in asset management. Do you want to expand a little bit on the idea that you were getting at there? Yeah, sure. So I think no one's arguing that long term returns from your investment manager is exactly what you're looking for from them. And they need to be able to deliver that in order to show that they're adding value for you and and your ultimate beneficiaries if you're a fiduciary in charge of your assets. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all decisions a fund manager takes, in my view, need to be long-term themselves. And there's been a lot of pressure from regulators and guidance from various industry bodies that it's all about the long-term sustainability. There's a risk there that that's somewhat misinterpreted and potentially misguided in the sense that there are companies that are in decline and maybe the best thing to do for them is to help them manage that decline and they don't have a long-term future and they should be looked to cut down on their businesses or even wind up completely. And if you've got pressure from industry bodies and regulators to think long-term and pressure for them to think about the long-term sustainability of their company, it's very hard for an investment manager to then go and say, well, look, company management, you actually should start thinking about returning capital to investors and 
winding down this business. And instead, they just walk away and leave it to somebody else's problem. And arguably, that's what we saw with you know, things like Carillion, where some of the professional fund managers just sold rather than helping the company manage its decline and eventually go into administration. And it sounds counterintuitive, but actually that can be profitable if you can buy those companies cheaply enough and manage their decline and extract the assets in that process, you can still make money out of it. So you're sort of saying that sometimes the right decisions can look a little bit like short-term decisions. Is that sort of the point that you're making? There? Yeah, it's, they, can be short-term, they can be short-term decisions. I think that's probably right. You can make a good long-term track record out of many good short-term decisions. And I don't really see a particular problem with that. Now, obviously, there is a problem if you are reducing the long-term benefits by trying to get short-term gains. And so anyone who takes that sort of view is clearly not acting in the best interest of you know, their clients or ultimately the economy as a whole, and that's you know, clearly to be discouraged. But sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes it does, does help to reallocate that capital more efficiently into a better company. So thinking about how investors can take what you've just said, how do they then distinguish between a manager that's making short-term decisions that deteriorate value versus those that, as you've just explained, could actually add value? Well, it is quite hard. Part of our research process is to always ask the managers for rationale for individual decisions of why they're making them. And in my experience, there are very few managers that will claim to look short-term. Now, there are some. Some will say, oh, I'm looking at next quarter's earnings, and if it meets target or above target, I'm buying, and if it looks like it's going to be below target, I'm selling. Clearly, that's a very short-term approach, and not one generally that we would encourage managers to do, and probably wouldn't be looking to use those managers for our clients. But most managers will at least claim to think in a very long-term way, be forecasting company cash flows and earnings over many, many years, and then trying to value that. Now, they're not going to get it right all the time, right? They're going to make mistakes, and that's sort of understandable. But at least they're trying to think in the long term and trying to make those decisions. How many managers really do operate on the basis of next quarter's earnings? Because isn't there the risk that there's this slightly unhelpful straw man characterization of sort of all these asset managers being incredibly short-term that sometimes gets thrown around, right? Absolutely. That's a really good point. They do get a bad reputation for being short-term, of pressuring management to to achieve their next quarter's earnings and that sort of thing you see in the press. In my experience, I see a lot of managers, there are very few that that I've ever seen who will openly say that that is their approach to managing money. I can probably think of a handful that I've come across in 20 years of seeing equity managers. So you're sort of saying it's perhaps not quite the issue that's perceived and the sort of common language that's around it out there is maybe actually addressing what you might call the straw man kind of criticism of the industry. I think that's fair, yes. Individual managers have always got their careers to think about and they do have some pressure to achieve short-term performance. But I think it is perceived in the press particularly and a straw man is from the straw man is not actually characteristic of what's going on in, in the asset management market. Do you think that you mentioned regulation at the start and sort of that encouraging a very long-term view? Do you think that there is more regulation could do to sort of tackle this issue? I'm sure it can. You know, completely free capitalist approach to doing this is going to be extremely hard on those affected by it, other stakeholders affected by it. And I think generally the industry is moving in the right way in order to be able to tackle that. And so you know, focus on the governance, a focus on wider stakeholders that we've seen recently is all to be applauded. But it just sometimes gets a little bit too far and could encourage this over-emphasis on everyone taking long-term views the whole time, which isn't always appropriate in some situations. I guess it seems relevant at this point to bring up the idea of short selling. So that feels like that's part of this whole debate as well. So what's your take on how that fits into this debate about long-termism and short-termism? So maybe we should just back up and talk about what short sellers do. So short sellers are looking to 
profit from when a share price falls in value. And they might do this by, um, we'll come on to why this is relevant, they could do this by borrowing stock. So if you're a passive investor or a long-term holder, you might lend your stock to one of these short sellers. They will then sell it in the market immediately, hope the price falls in value as they're expecting it to, buy it back, return the stock to you, and then pocket the difference between the high price they sold it at and the low price they bought it back at. They're looking to profit in that way from the, the fall in values. So they are obviously not long-term holders of those companies. They're not long-term investors. They don't have the long-term interest of those companies in mind. And in fact, they, it feels like they're hoping that they fail. Yes, hoping they fail. And you know, there are obviously some shady practices going on here in very few circumstances where they try to manipulate that market and might put out a press article slamming a particular company to try and encourage some of that fall in price that they would profit from. That's not widespread. It is generally illegal in most markets. And they are more, most of them that I've met will come across as just trying to profit from a poor valuation from the market of the company and that it genuinely is not worth what the rest of the market thinks it is. Now, this leads on to how we're talking about responsible investment and long-term thinking. And one of the largest investors in the world, the Japanese um, pension investment fund, recently announced that its long-term holdings of stocks, it would no longer lend out to these short sellers. It felt that the short sellers don't have the long-term interest of the company at heart, where they do, and therefore their interests aren't aligned. And so they wouldn't be helping them. They wouldn't be lending their stock out. Now, they obviously make some money out of lending, so it does cost them something, an opportunity cost, not to lend this stock out. But it's an interesting development that they might take mm. that view. I've not seen that argument from others before, and we've seen a bit of discussion in the press about it, which is quite an interesting, interesting angle. My view is that if you're a passive investor, and it tends to be index tracking funds, passive investors that lend these stocks out because they've got that stable long-term ownership, you are a price taker. You don't have anyone as a fund manager assessing the value of a particular company. Your passive investment manager just takes the price that the market assigns to it. It doesn't go out and say, oh, I think this company is overvalued or undervalued. And so therefore, it's in your interest that the rest of the players in the market are absolutely on top of what the right valuation for that company is, for every company in the market is. And so if you, as a passive investor, stop these short sellers, then perhaps your investments become overvalued in time. Now, that might look short term as a good thing, but ultimately that's going to come fail. You know, we've seen bubbles in markets before that just cause a lot of pain when they fall over and burst as a bubble. But yeah, as a passive investor, I think it's misguided to discourage short sellers. I think actually you probably want to get the best estimate that all players in the market can come up with for the price of any individual company. That's a really interesting take. I guess it's a little bit, I think it cuts against the grain a little bit, doesn't it? Because short sellers get a bit of a bad rap, don't they? Let's be honest. If you follow Elon Musk or whatever on Twitter, I think he's always raging against the, the short sellers in Tesla or whatever. But it sounds like you're actually saying you think that from the perspective of long-term passive investors, that short sellers are actually a good thing because of price discipline, right? Yeah, price discipline, absolutely. And you might own stock, but at the same time, your marginal investment might be further investment into the market. If you're in a, the savings phase, whether you're an individual or institution, and you're purchasing, you want to try and purchase at a, a low price or at least at the right price, right mm. inverted commas, right, the right price for the market that you're purchasing. And so if you don't have these short sellers arguing that, oh, this company's overvalued, it's actually got a fraud, which sometimes we've seen as their sort of investment case, 
then you don't get the right price and you're overpaying when you're putting that marginal investment in. But could you not get a similar sort of effect by investors, especially in, in the stock markets, can move very quickly in and out of stock? So not just short selling a stock, but just I have some holding and I'm going to sell it because I no longer have such confidence in the company. There's been a fraud or, or that sort of thing. Do you not think that that could somehow balance the market without the need for the short sellers? Could do. It might be the case that that's possible. It's just hard to know. And it might be that the more people you can encourage to participate in the market and take an active view on what the right price is, then overall efficiency of the market's better and you get the, the right price. You don't get these bubbles and nor do you get these you know, slumps where prices are, are too low and you're selling too cheaply. Either. So at the moment, I think you said the standard practice among passive funds is to stock lend. Is that right? Yeah, nearly all passive funds mm. that we see will have a policy of, of lending their stock. So all the big players will, will do it within their funds. And is there any evidence that other investors are following the Japanese government pension fund in that regard? Or how's that gone down in the industry, that announcement? The industry's not really had time to digest it properly yet. I've not seen any of the larger managers come out with a particular view on it. But I think you know, it's such a big investor, such a big scheme, such a big pot of money that the market will have to digest it and see whether they can follow through and, and do the same thing. It's interesting news, interesting development in what's normally a very quiet, sort of staid, passive <laughs> area of the market. Perhaps we'll get you back in a few months' time and see how the dust has settled. Yeah. So changing tack slightly onto a slightly different topic. So I know you were involved in producing our manager fee survey last year, which is obviously an area that's very close to your heart and to all of our hearts, always looking for the best value fees for our clients. Do you want to walk us through some of the main takeaways from that and maybe talk about some of the big trends you've seen in manager fees over the last decade or so that you've been involved in the market? Yeah, sure. So every two years, just as background, we survey the institutional investment management market in the UK across a range of different asset classes to try and establish what the market rate is for fees at different asset sizes across all the different asset classes that institutional investors might be interested in. And general trends, well, over the the years, and again, in the latest issue, we've seen a reduction in fees generally for many different asset classes, particularly active equity mandates continue to see falls in fee levels. We've seen Overall fees paid by institutional investors and particularly by pension funds where we've got good data for their asset allocation split and the way that asset allocation split is changing has been an interesting development. So 10 years ago, we estimate the average UK pension scheme was paying about 0.39% in fee, overall fee across all of their assets. I had expected that over the last 10 years, we'd have seen a huge reduction in that because we've seen you know, a move to lower allocations to equities, which are generally quite expensive to invest in, a move from active equities to passive equities, and therefore a lower fee, and a move into gilts or gilt-like, LDI-like investments, which are reasonably cheap. In actual fact, we've only seen a 0.03% reduction to 0.36%. Wow. These are estimates, right? So basically unchanged is the answer in overall fee, which I was a bit shocked by, but It turns out that there has been that huge reduction in contribution from the equity fee. But there's been a bit of an increase from the bond allocation. That's partly because UK schemes have moved a little bit more into corporate bonds, which are a little bit more expensive in terms of fees than government bonds. They've also massively increased their government bond exposure or bond exposure overall. But one of the big contributors is a move into alternative like assets and property, infrastructure. Hedge funds has been a slight increase as well. And all of those are fairly expensive fee levels. And although that increase in allocation hasn't been huge, that's been quite a big contribution to the fee. So 
Yeah, that was an interesting, interesting move that actually fees haven't really reduced overall for the average UK pension scheme. And if we just think about equities for a second, so to maybe ask a slightly obvious question, you know, what is driving that big fee reduction? Were they just too high in the past? What's pushed the fees down? Well, it's partly been because of that demand. So institutional investors across the board are moving out of active equities. And there's two drivers for that. One is just a general reduction in equity allocation. So they're selling equities there. And where they are switching managers, a lot of institutional investors have moved from active management of equities into passive management of equities. And we've seen the index tracking market grow enormously in the last 20 years, but even the last 10 years, it's carried on growing hugely. So both of those drivers have meant that the active management's fee levels have just become unsustainable because there's just no little demand for their product, particularly from institutional investors. I guess similarly with the alternatives where you said they tend to be more expensive, do you get the feeling that actually these managers are hugely benefiting from this sort of demand for those types of assets and potentially not pricing fairly? I'm not sure about pricing fairly. Certainly, you know, the market rate hasn't moved down much from what we've seen. And if anything, there's been a slight trend upwards in some of the alternative areas. But it's also that institutional investors have become more niche in their allocations. So whereas it might have used to be a single allocation to a core UK property manager is pretty much the only alternative asset in a pension scheme portfolio many years ago. Now there's that 10, 5, 10% only liquid assets is spread across many different types of alternative asset. It might be infrastructure, it might be a few hedge funds, it might be different types of property. And so mm-hmm. we can see the fee of a niche player tends to be a bit higher and smaller allocations to each manager also makes the fee a bit higher. But presumably... In general, over the last 10 years, asset values have all been going up. So these managers are, if they're charging as a proportion of the assets that they hold, they're sort of benefiting. Lots of their fixed costs aren't going up anywhere near as much as the assets that they're managing. So I guess they are quits in a little bit. That's absolutely right. So I've been talking in percentage terms of fees and fee level moves. But yeah, in terms of pound notes, yeah, fees have increased hugely across most of the the mandates and, and the schemes that we've seen. Just to push back on that a little bit, and a couple of maybe slightly obvious arguments, but there's an argument that says, well, hang on, fees aren't everything. Clearly, investors care about the returns they get net of fees. So let's say I'm a great, fantastic manager. I believe that my services are worth a high fee. How does that argument sort of play in this world of decreasing fees? Absolutely, right. It's all about value for money. And if you can find a great manager who can deliver high returns, they are worth paying for if their net return after those fees is still higher than you would have got otherwise. But it's about certainty as well, isn't it? So if I'm an investor and I know I'm going to pay a fee of 0.5%, say, then I know he's got it. the manager has to outperform by at least that much in order to justify it. But I don't know whether that outperformance will come through, but I know I'm paying the fee. And so there's always that uncertainty and therefore pressure to keep the fees as low as possible. Do you see managers sort of offering different fees at different points in their sort of life cycle? You know, would a newer manager typically be able to offer lower fees than one with a bigger book of business? It varies a bit, actually, by sort of business model of the manager. So we tend to see that where large established managers offer a new product, they'll offer a discount to new investors within that product and to try to encourage a bit of seed money into it and build, it, build their business. But we also tend to see, you know, brand new managers struggle to pay, to charge very low fees just because they have to cover their overheads and they have to charge a fee. So generally, there is a a scale benefit to the manager and to the ultimate investors of large investment managers. They can afford to charge you lower fees. They just have an economy of scale that they can pass on. 
And I guess turning that the other way around, like bigger institutional investors also get the economy of scale benefit because if they're allocating more, that manager has you know more assets to play with and they're often able to offer more attractive fees. Is there anything that I guess you would advise for the sort of smaller end of the market where should they be grouping together with other investors to try and sort of as a group get lower fees? Is that something that, that works well? It's very difficult to coordinate, but we have seen some moves along those lines. As people, institutional investors use platforms a little bit more, and we can see that the platform itself can face off against the manager as being the investor and therefore have the economy of scale of pooling you know, many different actual underlying investors' assets into one and trying to negotiate a lower fee. There is some benefit there. As a consultancy, we try to coordinate that across clients and we've had some success in talking to managers and saying, we are advising multiple underlying investors, can you please offer us a reduced fee reflecting that larger aggregate pot and that's had some success as well so yes how often do you think investors should be reviewing the fees they've got in place with managers i guess if we've got this big downward trend it could be that you get out of date with your fees quite quickly yeah absolutely that's a really good point so as you say as the trend goes down if you negotiated your fee and put the, the money into play three years ago it might be that now a new investor is being offered a, a lower fee and so reviewing the fees regularly is certainly something you should do And we can use the data from the survey to help clients do that and see what the current market price for their mandate is and then go back to the manager and say, your fee is now out of date, you're offering a lower fee to to new investors. Can we please reflect that discount? And of course, managers love that conversation, right? That goes really well. (laughs) That goes down really well. (laughs) Yes. And I guess us, you know, again, as a consultancy, our clients are relying on us to actually stay on top of what fees are doing. So the survey comes out every two years, but we ought to also be, every time we see managers, checking those sorts of things. So I guess message to investors is check with your advisors, ask your advisors, what's the latest time you checked about fees with the managers? Yeah, absolutely. Having that data to hand as you're having that discussion with the manager really helps. I mean, they are professionals. They know what they're doing in terms of business and fee levels. And so having information about with your fees, market level fees, or to hand as you're having that discussion is a huge benefit, or frankly, you're going to get in your life. And what about the question of capacity? Because surely some managers will say, well, hang on, I've only got a certain amount of capacity in the strategy, whether that's because of the asset class or a particularly active approach. So I'm a bit constrained with the levels I can sell it at. I mean, how would we respond to that sort of argument? I mean, I think that in many cases, that is a valid argument, particularly in illiquid assets or mm. managers doing something particularly niche. And from their point of view, why would they offer a discount if they can only invest you know, 500 million or some limited asset value and they think they can fill that? Why would they sell it to you cheaper? But at the same time, you know, as a particularly an institutional investor, you can say, well, you know, I'm a long term holder. I'm going to be here for the duration of these assets. You don't have a lot of client service for cost for me because I'm taking up a lot of your capacity and I'm just one person that you have to meet once a quarter, report to me once a month. And so you can make some arguments to try yeah. to reduce those fees there as well. Yeah, well, That's a really interesting point. So you're actually saying that investors can sort of position themselves as a good investor and use that as leverage to try and pitch for better fees from a manager. Is that sort of what you're what Absolutely. You're There's lots of negotiating levers you can use to, to try to, to argue the fees down. And I guess, as you also said, in particular in niche markets where potentially there's a bit less liquidity, early investors quite often do get discounts. So I guess, again, being one of the first investors to approach a new idea probably will be beneficial. Yeah, from that. absolutely. Yeah. Okay, changing tack slightly again. So the third topic we wanted to cover was around pooled funds and particularly the liquidity of individual pooled funds. So I think there was a big announcement by the FCA, or was it the Bank of England, a couple of months ago. Do you want to fill us in on that? Yeah, sure. So we've had the issues with Woodford Investment Management over the summer, 
So a bit of background, Woodford Investment Management, huge equity investment manager in UK and UK equities in particular. The fund was seeing a lot of redemptions coming through, people, investors wanting their money back. But the underlying assets, it turns out, weren't liquid enough effectively to be able to meet all of those redemptions. The fund had to suspend dealing, which means that investors were not able to get their money back from that fund. And then that's a bad outcome, that's right? A very bad outcome. <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad outcome for investors. It's a bad outcome for the manager. And ultimately, it looks like Woodford Investment Management will be removed from being an investment manager for nearly all of its funds and investment trusts that it, that it manages and will wind down as a firm. And so, to be clear, this is institutional and sort of retail. This could be people on the street, ordinary, yes. ordinary Yeah, people. and a lot of the Woodford's client base will retail individual investors. So a lot of people affected, very bad outcome for everybody. The Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA, got a lot of stick for not being on top of it and not seeing this in advance and being able to deal with it. So we had all these issues about fund liquidity. And the Bank of England then with the FCA came up with a statement last month and said, we're going to look at this a bit more closely because we can see a systematic issue or systemic issue here affecting the market. And their particular bent on it, the Bank of England's particular bent on it, is that they see that there is an advantage to investors moving out of a fund early in a situation where the, the fund is under stress. So if the underlying assets have a level of liquidity that's not super high, but the fund itself is offering the opportunity to sell those assets, sell the fund daily, that's a mismatch. And if we get into a stress period where lots of people are trying to sell, then there's an advantage to moving quickly, which encourages people to move quickly, which itself causes the problem. And so what the Bank of England has said with this joint statement is they're going to look much more closely at this and try to come up with guidance or even regulation that will closely align the liquidity of the underlying assets with the dealing terms of the fund, with the cost that it will be for you to buy and sell the fund as an investor and to make sure that then you try to reduce the possibility that there's a systemic issue, that there's a run on the fund. Now, mm. If you think about what's actually going on here, it's quite similar to a bank and when we saw Northern Rocks run in 2007, if you got out early, you got your money back. If yeah. you didn't, you were stuck. And it's a very similar sort of thing. So Bank of England's quite used to dealing with, with that and putting in regulations around that. And we're going to see something analogous to it. And do you think that's warranted? I mean, do you feel that issue is out there in the industry as something that could potentially um, cause problems? It's pretty rare. We don't see many fund suspensions because of those issues where the underlying assets are reasonably liquid. We have obviously seen it in funds which invest in bricks and mortar property. And we've seen a number of those funds have periods of being suspended from dealing and then open up again as they've been able to sell underlying assets. And the FCA actually dealt with those somewhat separately back in September, came up with some rules about how to deal with those. But I think you know, from an investor's point of view, it's worth remembering it's a mirage if you think that you can really get liquidity on a fund which is completely out of line with the liquidity of the underlying asset. You can't make a silk purse from a sales year. You just have to accept that sometimes that might come unstuck and you may be locked in. And as an institutional investor and you can take a long-term view, it's probably not too bad. As long as the investment manager isn't doing something egregious that could harm you in those underlying assets, such as selling all the good assets and keeping all the bad ones that you remain exposed to. Yeah, but it sounds like this could be huge for, I guess, the retail space and also defined contribution pension schemes where actually we require at the moment that there is daily dealing. Yeah, so you know, there are regulations in place already to try to address this. Most funds will have some way of charging investors who want to get their money back a fee, reflect the, the true cost of selling the underlying assets. 
And so there are mechanisms in place already. I think this will make it more robust and make sure that those funds are actually applying those consistently, properly and reflecting the market conditions at the time. But yeah, they could go further and they could say, well, you cannot have this type of assets in a daily dealing fund. And as you say, the way the DC market is set up at the moment, that may, I don't think it will, but it may mean that DC investors can no longer get exposure to certain type of assets, which would be a bad outcome for investors generally. So we'll, we'll need to be responding to the consultations that come out and pointing these sort of issues out, I think. So a tricky balance to strike there, effectively, I think, was what you're saying. So it's avoiding the problems, but also not sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and avoiding investment in assets that could be good. Yeah, so let's hope we do. Fine. Okay, then. So as we're wrapping up, Matt, so how can listeners contact you and find your stuff if they want to? Well, I'm on the Elaine Clark and Peacock website, on the LCP website, which I've forgotten the address of. <laughs> lcp.uk.com. <laughs> which is lcp.uk.com. And my contact details are on there. Very happy to take questions and comments from people on there. I'm also on LinkedIn as well. Great. Any recommendations for our listeners, books, articles, podcasts, movies, etc.? I've reread recently Moneyball by Michael Lewis, which is mm. always a great book to read. It's about baseball rather than about finance. But the messages in that of the success factors or the factors that drive success are not necessarily what you think is intuitive. And you need to do the work and the underlying analysis to work out what the, the factors that drive success are, are so applicable to finance that I just always find it fascinating to reread that one. Yeah, it's a good one, isn't it? Have you seen the movie as well? Isn't it the one with Brad Pitt or That's something? Right, yeah, the, the, GM, movie, yeah. the movie's very good. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> So we've now got a quick speed round for you, Matt. So there's going to be a series of questions and the context for each question is which of the two options do you back for the next decade? And of course, we aren't going to hold you to the answers at all, but okay. we, we maybe we kind of will. No, no, you can no, answer all the questions. Okay, yeah. One or the other, and you, you can choose to expand or not on your answer. So which of the following two do you back for the next decade? Active or passive management? Active. Massive surprise, man. <laughs> Developed or emerging markets? Developed. US or European equities? European equities. Economics or computer science as a degree? Both. <laughs> Combined. <laughs> That's cheating, oh, Computer science then, if you help me to. <laughs> Ed Sheeran or Justin Bieber? I don't know any of those names. <laughs> no, Ed Sheeran, I'm kidding. You always had you down as a Justin Bieber <laughs> And finally, AI, threat or opportunity? Opportunity. And finally, Matt. What's the most underappreciated thing in investing, in your opinion? Underappreciated thing. I'm not sure it's underappreciated, but often forgotten is that you can use cash quite effectively to reduce risk in a really straightforward way. So whether you're a strategic investor, maybe a pension scheme member, maybe you're a pension pot, and you're coming, to the, coming up to retirement, end of your working life, you want to reduce risk. A lot of people might first thought might be to, well, I need to start increasing investment in lower risk assets into bonds. Where in actual fact, it might be in some situations better just to carry on holding your balanced portfolio of investments and then just sell a bit of it, vertical slice of it, and hold cash against it and then increase that cash allocation. You maintain the diversification and you can get the reduction in risk very easily. And even a tactical investor, if you think today equity markets are looking unattractive, often investors will start looking at very complicated approaches and try to use options strategies or some structured products. And it might just be better just to sell a bit. That using cash to reduce risk is a very easy and straightforward way of doing it. So cash is king, basically. Cash is king, absolutely. 
Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time today. We've really enjoyed the conversation and best of luck with your 100k running training for the rest of the year. Thanks very much. That's all we have time for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please do leave us a review. It really makes a difference and we really appreciate it. Please tune in again next week for another episode of Investment Uncut. podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.